Please note, this episode deals with conversations around sex, necrophilia, and blackface. You know, a silent film is one giant step closer to fairy tale than a talking picture. You know, and it's just two steps away from being a narrative ballet. Welcome to Cinema Reignited, a podcast by the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television, powered by Telecom Canada. I'm Samah Ali, your host, and in each episode of this series, we will explore a different film that has recently been digitized as part of the Canadian Cinema Reignited Initiative, led by Telefilm Canada and in partnership with Hot Docs, the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television, the Festival du Nouveau Cinéma, and the Toronto International Film Festival. By taking you on a journey through time when each film was made and how the film relates to broader historical and societal themes, Cinema Reignited will help you rediscover the legacy of Canadian film and ensure that the stories of our past are not lost to future audiences. We're taking a look at these seminal Canadian films through a modern-day lens so we can gain insights into the shaping of our country's identity and culture. In this episode, we'll be exploring Tales from the Gimli Hospital, the 1988 cult classic directed and written by Guy Madden. Have I ever told you the story of Einar the Lonely? No? And Snowfrieder, the beautiful young girl who was dying? It all happened in a Gimli we no longer know. In 1988, a self-proclaimed slacker made what some now consider to be the most popular film to ever come out of Manitoba. Now, it's hard to reconcile how a slacker could have amassed 68 directing credits, 35 writing credits, and an impressive award-winning career. But the ever-self-deprecating filmmaker, Guy Madden, also calls himself a dreamer. His surreal, dreamlike films, like the one we're talking about today, are evidence enough for me to agree with at least half of his self-evaluation. Tales from the Gimli Hospital was Madden's first feature. Set in the idyllic town of Gimli, on the shores of Lake Winnipeg during an epidemic in the late 19th century, it's a tale of jealousy, revenge, and peculiar erotic fixations. But perhaps the first thing today's audiences will notice about the film is its format. It's shot in black and white using 16mm film creating the impression that it was made nearly 50 years prior to its original release in the late 80s. It's a part talkie, inspired by the transitional period between silent films and the talkies that took place in the late 1920s. With minimal, understandable dialogue between characters, the audience hears the story as it is narrated by an Icelandic grandmother to her two grandchildren. The film draws on Madden's family heritage, and the Icelandic immigrants that settled in the small fishing town of Gimli, one hour north of Winnipeg. The characters and their emotional struggles also reflect Madden's personal life experiences. Unconstrained by the commercial pressures of Hollywood, the film's surrealism was partly driven by its very small budget, but also by the films and filmmakers that Madden first fell in love with. Beautifully absurd, The film has now been labeled a cult classic. For Madden, it marked the beginning of a critically acclaimed 
30-year career in film. It has now been restored in 4K, and the new release premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in September 2022, despite having not been selected by the festival in the late 80s. We spoke with Guy Madden from his home in Winnipeg to learn about his filmmaking origins, the making of Tales from the Gimli Hospital, and its 4K revival. Guy, thank you for joining us on Cinema Reignited. First question, I think this will be an easy one for you. What was it like growing up in Winnipeg? Oh man, growing up in Winnipeg. I was born in 1956, so back in way before anyone dreamt of the internet, it really did feel isolated and because it frankly was geographically, climatically, culturally isolated from the rest of Canada, from America. And America's presence was very strongly felt in the form of television and movies, especially television. I was a TV addict as a kid. I was the youngest of four kids, left to my own devices almost entirely in this pretty big house. And so I was just wandered around from one television set to another and uh, sort of absorbing my idea of the world through uh, American network television a little bit of CBC, CTV, but uh, heading out to movies. I really enjoyed my childhood. I remember being bored a lot, but I, I was kind of a connoisseur of boredom and laziness. And I remember even as young as five adults describing me as a lazy child. That is so funny. Well, you know what? I too was described as what my family called a TV addict. We both ended up in the right profession in the film business. So it worked out for us. <laughs> <laughs> All that laziness paid off. Exactly. Your work is so intertextual, making references to so many of the greatest filmmakers of yesteryear. Who were some of your favorite filmmakers and authors as a young person? I did watch movies as a kid. I liked my monster movies. And there wasn't as much choice in those days <laughs> as there is now for a kid who could just watch a Marvel Comics universe, a special effects spectacular. There was just grindhouses showing many years after they were made, those Cold War horror films. They were really low budget and fakey, but I liked them. I liked them a lot. And I could tell they were fakey, but I bought into them anyway. I kind of the way I guess people watch wrestling. I've often thought of the way my grandmother used to read me bedtime stories she would sit on the bed and tell the same story every night. And sometimes she told it really well. Other times I would have a chance to compare it, her latest version, unfavorably to the last version she told. Sometimes she happened to be sitting on my foot. And other times I was utterly comfortable. So it was a little bit different each time. So, But I'd get absorbed into the stories, my favorite stories of hers. But I was always aware of the grandmother. I think that when I make my own movies, I'm showing people the grandmother as well. Well, I'm, since I'm a filmmaker now, I'm aware of the various grandmothers, the filmmakers telling me the stories on screen. And I, I like the simultaneous awareness of, of whatever's going on in the story, but also the, the storyteller. And so I would say my grandmother and my Aunt Lil told me the best stories when I was little. When did you decide to make that transition between cinephile and filmmaker? When I was a young adult, 
all of a sudden, a bunch of things intersected for me. I became aware that a film prof friend of mine actually made movies. And then uh, this local filmmaker, John Pays, showed up in his class and showed his latest movie, uh, a 30-minute film called The Obsession of Billy Botsky. So maybe that was 1980 when I was 24 years old. And I suddenly became aware, it just didn't even occur to me that you could make a movie in Winnipeg. And they were clearly low budget. They weren't slick like big Hollywood films, but they were still entertaining and smart. All of a sudden, I think probably the instant I saw John Pace's film and I later saw all the films he made, I started thinking, God, I gotta, I gotta try my hand at this because I, I've never been so entertained by something less Hollywood looking. So I remember after Billy Botsky ended and the lights came on, I went straight up to Pays and I asked him how much it cost to make that movie because I'd had an aunt pass away and leave me $5,000 recently. And he said, uh, cost $5,000. And I thought, I'm gonna make one. <laughs> I've got $5,000, I'm gonna make a movie. And I didn't make one right away because I didn't know what I was doing. But a few years later, I, I started. He described for them the happy winter of the warm snow the settler's only season of joy since landing on the shores of Lake Winnipeg one long ago, October 21st. He told them about Sigvalda Sigurdsdottir of Ua District, a woman who knitted scarves and mittens using wool carded from her own hair trimmings. Which aspects of Tales from the Gimli Hospital are autobiographical or drawn from your own experiences growing up, if any? Yeah, lots are autobiographical. Strangely, I didn't think I was making any incidents or storylines in the movie autobiographical. But the setting, I grew up living above and behind the family beauty salon uh, run by my Aunt Lil, where my mom was employed all the time. They loved their jobs. They just, they worked as if they weren't doing it for money. They just did it to be with their friends, because all their customers were Icelandic Canadian. We grew up in a, the West End of Winnipeg, which was a little Iceland in Winnipeg. And it was very common to hear Icelandic being spoken or shouted above the roar of the hairdryers in that place. They spoke a lot of old Iceland. They spoke a lot of Gimli, which is a one hour drive to the north of Winnipeg, which is an Icelandic Canadian fishing community. And there's a style of storytelling that Icelanders have that's really ancient. It's almost like when you're when you're picturing the story in your head while an Icelander is telling one to you, that's it's more like a tapestry. You see all the people from head to toe involved in a wider shot than usual. And really grisly and gruesome things can happen, but they aren't so visceral because you never see them in close up. And lots of grisly and gruesome things do happen in Icelandic family sagas, because they had, especially the pioneers in Manitoba, had it really bad. They were dying at every turn and of really miserable, miserable deaths. I knew I wanted to tap into this as a setting. Being so isolated in Winnipeg and feeling that there was so much material, so many worlds that I was familiar with that the rest of the world wasn't, I just really dreamt almost all my childhood, even before knowing I could become a filmmaker, I dreamt that 
someone could come to my hometown and make a movie about it. Well, you know, taking this historical, mythological approach to embedding this, this place called Gimli that I love so much in Emulsion. What are your memories of crafting this story? For example, what was the writing process like? Where did you draw inspiration? When was the concept first born? I was a house painter back in those days, and I spent around the time of the genesis of this project, I was painting with a good friend named Ian Hanford, who also hung out in Gimli in the summers, and we were practically inseparable. And it was kind of his idea to actually make a movie about Gimli. He started suggesting some some scenes and just the spirit of it. I, I'd always been daydreaming about it since childhood, but but all of a sudden, both filmmaking and Ian Hanford were in my life at the same time. And, and so something sparked. And there'd be rainy days where we wouldn't be able to paint and we'd just talk about what might go into this Gimli movie. And then since we hated house painting so much, we'd even not paint houses on sunny days, leaving the owners of houses really annoyed. I started jotting down some ideas, and next thing I knew, I was Ian was a far harder worker than I was, and he had another job at a brewery or something, and and I just, I admit in my enthusiasm to do it, I just pushed Ian aside and just started working on this movie. It ended up taking 18 months, you know, with a little bit of shooting here, processing the film, cutting it together. I didn't really know how to do any of this stuff, but running out of money frequently, waiting for more money, having a dream of a scene, and then writing that down on a post-it note and then shooting it the following weekend. I absolutely loved the experience of making it, even though sometimes it felt like I might it might take 10 years to make. But watching it again recently, because I hadn't really seen it in decades, once it was restored and premiered at TIFF, I was reminded how much fun it was. And just reading the end credits with all the names of all the people that came out and helped and acted in it or did favors for me, I just realized what a great community, what a great communal experience it is making films, especially on this leisurely schedule that I allowed myself. I kind of felt ashamed of how long it it took me, but then I learned that Jim Jarmusch made his masterpiece Stranger Than Paradise over about a one-year period, just shooting on weekends and prepping sets and prepping dialogue, for all I know, or whatever, during the weekdays. And um, it's actually a very sensible way to make a film of a certain size, a certain budget. And so I think, once again, I got lucky by taking the right evolutionary step. I just took the time I needed. How would you describe the world you were living in in 1988? Well, I was already 32 years old when this got completed. I'd made one short film called The Dead Father before this, but and that took me forever too. But I was just teaching myself things to do. It was before the term slacker was popular. I was a, a slacker, just a dreamer. I already had a, a young child from a very short-lived marriage that ended very amicably uh, because I, I was so immature. And I was just hanging around with a bunch of film professors who had good, solid, reliable incomes. 
And my friends who are smart and charismatic, it was fun just being with them and watching movies, going to plays, reading books, getting into arguments, kind of just bohemian society, except that I was also a father. So there were times where I felt bad about being um, a father with such a bohemian lifestyle. I was, it was just a, a slacker and a drifter who occasionally felt real strong pangs of guilt because my other so-called slacker friends would go on to graduate from law school or medicine and go on and, you know, be launching themselves well into a solid, respectable careers uh, while I was still in that great dream cloud. We're now going to take a quick break for a message from our podcast partner, Telefilm Canada. Some people think going to the movies is about watching one, but they've forgotten the true magic of the cinema. At the movies, you can smell the memory of being a kid. Taste the wonder in losing yourself in a well-directed masterpiece. Touch the parts of your heart you forgot were still tender. And hear the contagious laughter of the crowd. See the lights dim and the energy shift. It's time to get back to it. Feel again at a theater near you. Tales from the Gimli Hospital is a sensory experience. Often described as surrealist, it contains shocking, absurd, and often nonsensical imagery, the kind you might see in a feverish nightmare. It's no surprise then that Madden's early work was inspired by other surrealist filmmakers who came before. Your interest in surreal, dreamlike scenes goes as far back as this, your first feature. Can you talk about why you were drawn to this kind of imagery? One of the first movies I fell in love with before I wanted to become a filmmaker was the great Spanish surrealist filmmaker, Luis Buñuel's L'Age d'Or, The Golden Age, made in 1930. It's a part talkie like this, like Gimli Hospital. Um, it's silent when it wants to be, and it when it's time for the brushstroke of audible human speech, that's deployed as well. I loved how jaggedly he shot it. Benuel was just staunchly opposed to things that looked beautiful. So he was always taking the frames his cinematographers were uh, fixing for him and, and screwing with them a little bit. And then he hired nothing but non-actors, friends, enemies, frenemies, girlfriends, mistresses to fill out the cast. And mostly they're terrible. And yet the movie's still effective somehow. But when it came to making my own movies, I knew I had no experience directing actors. I had no experience lighting sets or, or building sets even to, to be realistic. I didn't have the energy or the money to do proper historical research and, and costume my performers accurately. So I just knew, well, I wasn't that interested in accuracy anyway. I was interested in mythology. So I, I knew I would adopt this surrealist style as mostly inspired by Bunuel's Lash Door. Now, as you know, children, beneath every bed in New Iceland was a hole in the floor, leading to the manger below where the heat would rise from the animals, keeping the settlers warm. Now, 
down that hole went the friendship of the two men. For once Einar was to lend Gunnar his fishing shears, their relationship would never be the same again. What role does envy play in the narrative? And why was this a theme you were interested in exploring? Well, I was a young man. Well, I've certainly been jealous as an older man, too. I'm 66 now. But when you first encounter as a young person unrequited love or, or infidelity or betrayal, you just, there's no guarantee you'll know what to, what to do, that you won't be able to handle it that you'll feel like doing something surreal. And this just suited my skill set as a filmmaker at the time. You know, a silent film is one giant step closer to fairy tale than a talking picture, you know, and it's just two steps away from being a narrative ballet. So I needed emotions that were recognizable with large, plain gestures on a screen in which very rarely would spoken dialogue pop up. Throughout the film, we see a lot of imagery depicting blood, gore, violence, and grotesque scenes involving the body. What thoughts or emotions are these images meant to evoke in the viewer? And how do they relate to the film's overarching themes? I think I just expected them to be goofy and funny. I I know some people do have a queasiness threshold a hair trigger one. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I, I hope I don't upset too many people with it. It's pretty fake looking. So I'm hoping it's funny or maybe slightly too much, but therefore funny. I'm just always terrified that people will think I'm too serious with what I'm making. You know, it's, it's a pretty artsy film and I just didn't want to come off like some sort of artsy wanker. So. I wanted to make sure I was flat tiring myself with ever, whenever possible by re- releasing some pressure with something clearly intentionally goofy and gross and stuff like that. I kept telling myself the film was a pre-code film, namely that it, that it represented that period in Hollywood when you were allowed to allude to forbidden things like drug use or homosexuality or sex period, premarital sex. So there's a necrophilia scene in the movie, which I tried to handle as tastefully as possible. And because the movie was structured in, a, in the fairy tale, out of the timbers of fairy tale and balletic narrative even, I felt I had to disinhibit betrayal and turn it into necrophilia even. I had to exaggerate it. Exaggeration actually distorts the truth, but disinhibiting the truth makes it feel more like the way it feels. So I thought if someone had just heard the words that someone had cuckolded him, he'd be upset. But I wanted to make it the surrealism equivalent of how it would feel. And that would be not only was I was I cuckolded, but the the dead body of my beloved was uh, disgraced as well. I was uh, trying to find a surrealist equivalent to um, the horrible feeling of discovering that your relationship with someone you love isn't what it seems. 
The film is set in black and white until the scene towards the end where we see vibrant shades of purple taking over the screen. Additionally, some of the film incorporates dialogue, while much of it's silent. Could you explain the meaning behind this creative decision and how you used sound and color as a narrative device in the film? Well, few people realize this, but silent films, though they didn't speak, often had toned and tinted sequences. And this could really change the mood of scenes. Sometimes it was very literal-minded, like night scenes were tinted blue and day scenes were tinted yellow. Other scenes were just given a a more, a less literal tint or tone and to suggest a mood. Purple would be the decadence of the mauve decade of the 1890s or something like that. At this point in the story, I was cross-cutting between the hallucinations of the two main men. And I, it, it just was the practical solution I chanced upon. I needed to separate for the viewer, not that they aren't completely lost by this point anyway, which hallucination they're watching. So the one that's kind of tinted, given a bath of a very saturated magenta is Anar's hallucination. He's hallucinating a musical number of women of all ages because he's really, he's just an unhinged libido pouring himself along the shores of Gimli at that point. And the other man is, is just having more of an audio hallucination of, of heartbreak and sexual outrage. And that I kept in black and white, just although it looks, sometimes it looks green because when you cut back and forth between a big uh, a screen of magenta, there's a weird persistence of vision optical illusion where black and white looks green uh, because the magenta is still rinsing itself off your retina and produces this green effect. Really interesting. And what about the sound? I've always liked the part talky. There was a period when Hollywood had, in 1928, 29, when they had produced uh, the jazz singer, of course, is in 1927, that's the first talking picture, but it's a part talkie. It's mostly silent. And all these films that had been finished but hadn't been released yet rushed to add talking sequences. It took till 1930 for all of Hollywood to make talking pictures, but there was this really strange period that, uh, that excited me when pictures were half silent and half talking. But I like the idea that an artist could have the option of having, of making a, a scene silent with just mime or having it, having it talk or something in between. And I was sort of a one man band when it came to the crew. And I didn't want to have to rely on a sound person to show up when most of my friends, as much as I love them, were unreliable. And I didn't want to owe favors to people. So I just didn't record sound in most cases. And it was, easier. My camera made a lot of noise and didn't have to worry about traffic just outside the studio. And so I just shot silent and then just added dialogue very sparingly because I could. Although the budget for this film was relatively small, you found ways of making the most of it. How did you strategize to ensure you were stretching the budget as far as possible? I'm terrible with money. (laughs) Um, I really am. What happened was um, my Aunt Lil, though, passed away 
I got, managed to get her in the movie. She's in one shot in the movie while she was dying of cancer and she died. She's just one of the extras just sitting beside a bed in the Gimli Hospital, which was a set built out of her old beauty salon. And um, she passed away a few days later and I'm so glad I got her in the movie. And then about halfway through shooting, her estate came through and she had left me $40,000. And I used about half of that to live on for the 18 months. And I used the other half to make the movie. And I never really budgeted anything. I just shot when I felt like shooting. And with this money I got from my Aunt Lil, I paid for the processing. And then the money was just, just fumes of money <laughs> by the time I paid the last bill to the lab to get a release print made. So I learned more by making a film with the money she left me than I would have learned going to a film school. Now, a lot of people could see where I'm missing a lot of formal filmmaking strengths um, that I would have picked up in film school. But I think they, those strengths would have, if I'd improved on those, they probably just would have made me um, more mediocre and less eccentric. As part of the Canadian Cinema Reignited program, Madden had a chance to update Tales from the Gimli Hospital and bring it to an entirely new audience. For those who have seen both the original release and the new digitized version, there are differences. When digitizing the film, were there specific scenes that you decided to remove for the updated version? Yeah, there was. You know, it's this makes me very uncomfortable to talk about. And I just wish it had never happened, but I will a- address it. Um, I had a um, a little sprinkling of a character who was a minstrel, a white guy in blackface in the film. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you my thinking at the time and how I came to regret that thinking and, and, and why it'll be so obvious that I took it out. You know, when I made the film, I was well aware I was using the vocabulary of 1930, say, Hollywood, when when the films were still part talkies and talking picture. And I knew enough about film history. I'd been watching film a lot, American film and European film, but a lot of Hollywood film of the 20s and 30s and even the 40s. And it took me a while to notice because it was such an exciting world that I was taking in all at once to notice that it was, it was that Hollywood was every bit as segregated as major league baseball was before Jackie Robinson came along that not only were the stories of African-Americans not being told, but they were, they were allowed into the movies now and then, but always as butlers or mammies or something. And, and that there, there was also these minstrel scenes like these ridiculously degrading caricatures of African-American people in the movies. And I wanted to say with this film, I'm not one of those guys who just thinks the good old days were better because I'm using this vocabulary of old timey filmmaking. And I thought that, yeah, a certain part of me was being flippant and provocative and I thought it would make people uncomfortable, but I thought it would be that my intention would be very clear that I was pointing out an historical fact, an historically uncomfortable fact about the period. Shortly after, I just realized that its presence was so ambiguous 
sufficiently motivated that audiences wouldn't understand why I put it there. And so I'd really come to regret it. And then I'd very much come to regret it in the year 2000 when I watched Spike Lee's Bamboozled, a film about the tradition of minstrelsy and blackface. And I realized how hurtful and heartbreaking it could be or would be almost for sure. And so I could hardly wait to get it out. And, uh, but the film was, was pretty much dormant by then. And it's really expensive to change the edit of a film. And I never had the money. So when Ron Mann approached me about possibly restoring this film, I instantly said yes, not only because I wanted it restored, but I wanted a chance to take, take out this perhaps too flippant, too insen- way too insensitively um, informed uh, or uninformed, wise-ass gesture. So it went out. And I replaced it with uh, another scene that I had shot 11 years after. Hmm. A bit of history. Yeah, no, I wanted it to go down in 1988 as kind of, um, I wanted it to be complicated. It, I think as the years passed, it became simpler and simpler, and it just became offensive and hurtful. And, and I, I don't know, I hope people can forgive me for my mistake. It's always important for us, as humans, to acknowledge when we are wrong. Madden took this opportunity to correct a mistake that haunted him for years, and the film is better for it. I asked Guy why today's film lovers should go and see Tales from the Gimli Hospital as part of the Canadian Cinema Reignited program. You know, I made this film on pure enthusiasm. And I think whenever someone has told me over the last 34 years that they saw this film or one of my early ones, which were also made in the similar uh, ecstatic trance of, of confidence, overconfident, narcotically giddy uh, enthusiasm, I would say I think there's a lot to be learned that you can express yourself in a style that you'll find if you just watch this film with an open mind and just open yourself up to its ridiculousness and its handcrafted ways. I'd I say I was inspired first by not just the filmmakers I met when I was in my 20s, but when my daughter was three or four years old, I just loved watching her make art. And she just had so much confidence, so much enthusiasm, so much glee when she attacked a piece of paper with a crayon and created one masterpiece after another and quickly, just working instinctively. And just, I would sort of hope that people could get the same sort of delight watching this, an adult version of of a kindergarten arts and crafts time, which is just pure energy and goofiness and a lot of subconscious troubles uh, roiling up near the, you know, bubbling the emulsions of the film. I was so excited. And I think maybe, maybe someone watching my film might discover their own way of expressing themselves. What's next for you? Um, I have the exact opposite of Tales from the Gimli Hospital uh, in development right now. I, I guess, What's next for me is I'm in in the long 
patient waiting period to get some bigger projects off the ground. And if they do get off the ground, they'll be wonderful. And if they don't, I will have spent a lot of time waiting. So we'll see. I teach diary filmmaking at the University of Toronto and uh, the wonderful film department there just to see students just taking to diary filmmaking. I really love it. So what's next for me might be a low budget film. It might be a major streaming um, platforms, prestige television series, or it might just be more, more teaching. I'd, I'd be happy with any of those three. The world is truly your oyster. And at least for me, oysters are delicious. So I hope that it's the same for you. <laughs> I'm, the, uh, I'm the irritant in the oyster that is my world. <laughs> yeah. Hoping to produce a pearl. Yeah. When Guy Madden set out to mythologize his hometown in Film Emulsion in 1988, there was no way he could have predicted that 34 years later, the film would be preserved through digital technology. Maybe the Guy Madden of 1988 would have been opposed to film preservation, believing that his film would get better as it deteriorated with age, just like the silent films and half-talkies that inspired him. But digitization didn't exist then. So now that Tales from the Gimli Hospital has been digitized and revised, even more people will have an opportunity to see how a dreamer started a uniquely successful filmmaking career in his family hair salon. Despite what he might have believed about himself, Guy Madden wasn't a slacker. He was like many of the other filmmakers that we've spoken to on Cinema Reignited, extremely driven to make films, and he worked hard to make his dream a reality. Looking back all these years later, it might even feel surreal. Tales from the Gimli Hospital is currently playing at select theaters. Thanks to Guy Madden for joining me on this episode. Thank you for listening to Cinema Reignited. I hope you learned something new today about the Canadian film landscape and our country's cultural identity. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with your network and even tag us at the CDN Academy and at Sister Sama. Of course, rate and review the podcast to help us connect with other Canadian film lovers. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode and hopefully we'll see you next time.